Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef, equipping us to grow into a deeper walk with Christ. Part of Night Vision each weeknight. Details at vision.org.au. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective. 2020 on Vision. We've been talking over recent weeks in a couple of fairly significant segments where we've talked about the nation of Israel, where we've talked about issues of anti-Semitism, even delving right back into history and how anti-Semitism developed over many, many centuries and Christians' participation in that anti-Semitism too. Well, there's been history that has been made over the past hundred years, the development of the modern state of Israel. We're going to talk some more about those sorts of things today and your invitation to be part of our conversation as we talk about the changing face of Christian relations with Israel. Well, as you may know, one of the divisions of the ministry here at Vision is our Vision Tours to Israel. And those tours have been led for many years now by Ian and Mandy Warby. Ian, along with Mandy, has become very passionate about the plight of the Jewish people and their special place in God's plan for the history of the whole world. So we're going to be talking about Israel today and our talkback lines open on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own insights into perceptions of how Australians think about Israel, the Bible, about Christians, about other Christians. If you say, I'm a Christian, what about other Christians? And God's unfolding history through his chosen people. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. And I must say a very special welcome to my friend, Mandy Warby. Hello, Mandy, and welcome back. Hi, it's nice to be back. Very nice. You've only just arrived back on Australian soil because this was how many in the number of tours now that you and Ian have led? Oh, my gosh. It would be... I know it's more than 10. Yeah, I think we've just... I can't remember if it was our 14th or their 15th (laughs) time in land. All right. Well, I mean, you know, uh, over these 10 or 15 visits that you and Ian have made together, and uh, you know, I and I know you so well to know that you and Ian have even had personal private holidays as well uh, <laughs> in Israel, apart yeah. from the tours. And the tours have been a wonderful opportunity yeah. for listeners mm-hmm. uh, to vision to be participants in a not like a religious pilgrimage, but an opportunity to go mm-hmm. to the Holy Land in a special way and actually walk in the streets that Jesus walked yep. to see the sights that Jesus saw. This has really given you particular insight into the Jewish people, the modern Jewish people. How are you feeling about how things have begun to unfold in your own life, having gone to Israel so many times? Oh, my gosh. The first time we went to Israel was in September of 2008. I was itching to get there. I have always wanted to go there. Um, And, I, I, you know, it sounds so cheesy when you say, you know, go to Israel and it'll change your life. You know, it sounds really, really (laughs) cheesy, but it's really, really true. I've never been the same since. Since visiting the land, I am a, I am a different person. I I pick up my Bible and I read it differently. Um, and I I actually had I might have told this story before. Stop me if I'm repeating myself. But I had a, a gentleman on our very first tour, as we were travelling, we were on route to Israel, and he said, "So what can I expect? You know, when I get there?" And I said the same thing. I said, "This sounds really cheesy, really cliche, but you'll never read your Bible the same way again." And um, We'd only had our second night in Israel. We spent our first night in Tel Aviv, and then 
um, the second night we were in Tiberia. So on his the, that morning after the second night, he, he I met him down at the um, the dining room of the hotel, and he's, he's standing there gawking at this unbelievable array of food. And I said, "Oh, hey, how are you feeling this morning?" Blah blah. And he said, "You know, when you said I'd never read my Bible the same way again." I said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, "You know, I got up this morning and I opened the Gospel of Matthew and I started reading." While he's telling me this, in my surrounded by hundreds of people, tears started to just run down his face. And he said, then I'm reading the Bible and I pull back the curtains and there is the Sea of Galilee. And he said, I get what you mean. It suddenly hit him that what he was reading had happened right outside his bedroom window and it just, it rocked him. A little bit like mm. diving into the depths of the pages in the Bible and all of a sudden uh, you've opened the Bible and you're there. You're, you're in the in Bible it. land. That is the thing. It's like when you go to the land and you walk through these places where it's like you're actually walking in the Bible. It's like it's almost like a virtual reality tour. You're right in the middle of it and it's it's very, very difficult to kind of define what that is like until you've actually done it. But it's kind of, yeah, it's like a virtual tour. Now, how many listeners Division went on the tour with you just recently? It was a fairly significant tour, the overwhelming, wasn't it? Yeah, it was actually, yeah. I mean, you know, every tour we come back and we go, wow, that was just amazing. I don't think it could get any better. And you think, oh boy, if, if that was so good, then, you know, who knows what we'll get next time. Maybe it won't be so good. But every tour has improved, has exceeded our our wildest imaginations, and this one no less than that. This was an extraordinary tour, like it was a, and it was extraordinary. With it's like everything just was perfect, you know. Everything was perfect, and um, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's really hard to describe how good it was. How seeing people, you know, one of the, I mean, every time I go to these different places, I still and moved when I go there. I still learn new things all the time, even though I've been to these places places many times. But when I see the looks on people's faces, when, when it's like their eyes open and all of a sudden this light goes on, they're overwhelmed, oh, That's I get the biggest kick from that. What about some of the <laughs> best places that you see? I mean, I'm thinking of you know places like the Garden Tomb mm-hmm. and... Uh, the Jordan and, yeah. uh, you know, the Temple Mount, uh, those sorts of, yeah. uh, those significant places. Yeah. Uh, what for you are the highlights when you go to Israel? Do you know, every time we go somewhere, I say, this is one of my favourite places. <laughs> every place is one of my yeah. favourite places. There are a couple of things that I, I guess kind of stick out, though. One of them is uh, when we go into the very far north of the country, when we're pretty much right on the border with Lebanon, and uh, and there is a place called Tel Dan. And you remember when the ancient nation of Israel split and you had Israel, the northern kingdom, yep. Judah, the southern kingdom, and King Jeroboam, he established a false religion that mimicked the true religion. And he established it in the north because he didn't want the the 10 northern tribes to have to travel back to Jerusalem to the temple to worship because then they might want to reunite the country again. Mm. And so he established a golden calf in the north at Dan and a golden calf at Bethel in the south of the of Israel, the, the northern kingdom. Well, when we go to Tel Dan, they've excavated the ancient city of Dan and they found the ruins where that temple, where that golden calf was. Uh, and, and when you, it, 
and I know you kind of think, well, so so what? You know, you read the Bible, you read about these stories, and there's always somebody who says, oh, you can't believe the Bible. It's just old wives' tales. It's, you know, it's been disintegrated over the years through, like, Chinese whispers. You can't trust it. Then, you know, they say the greatest guidebook in Israel is your Bible. And so you go to this place and you suddenly think, this is exactly what the Bible said happened and now they've uncovered it. So it, it kind of reinforces that your Bible is true and trustworthy and you, it's accurate. That's one. But also in the same excavations, they have uncovered what is, it's, it's either the oldest arch or gateway in the world, definitely the oldest in Israel, or maybe it's the second oldest in the world. And they call it Abraham's Arch. This arch is so old, nobody's allowed to touch it, it's cordoned off. But they believe that it's unbelievably likely and probable that Abraham travelled through this archway either on his way from Haran, coming down into the land that God had promised him, or also possibly when he left the cities in the south, to chase after the kings who had captured Lot, his nephew, and all the peoples of the of the plains, where he rescued them and brought them back. And so it's very possible that Abraham went through that arch. So you look at this arch and you kind of go, holy moly, <laughs> this is a really, really, really ancient gate that Abraham, Abraham, the patriarch of our faith, probably travelled through with Sarah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when we think of Israel, we're thinking usually as Christians primarily about the places that Jesus yes. went, that Jesus walked, that mm-hmm. Jesus saw. And uh, you're on the Sea of Galilee. Yep. And of course, there are lots of stories in the Gospels yep. about Jesus being on the Sea of Galilee or by the Sea of Galilee. But when you start to talk about Abraham, you're Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the great patriarchs of Jewish faith. Yep. But these are also, as you say, the great patriarchs that we trace our Christian heritage to as well. Exactly. Because when we talk about our own Christian faith, uh, we understand that we are grafted in, yes. in that sense, yep. uh, to the Jewish religion mm-hmm. because the first covenant was with the Jews. Yes. The second covenant, the new covenant that we adhere to is also with the Jews as well. Can so I tell is, you, yep. I'm so excited that you just said the first covenant and the second covenant because the term old covenant and new covenant carries with it a connotation that the old is now, because it's old, we don't need it anymore, and the new is the only one we need to focus on. And, I mean, I just focused on... An, an event or a place in the Old Covenant Scriptures, what we call the Old Covenant Scriptures, right, the Old Testament. The Jews call that the Tanakh, right? You know, when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't have a new covenant in his back pocket, right? He didn't have a New Testament Scriptures in his back pocket. Hadn't been written yet. So every time he referred to something in the Scriptures, he was referring to the Tanakh, the Old Covenant Scriptures that we call it. That's what he was referring to, and he also said to the, to the, um, to the Pharisees, and I think it was in Mark chapter five, I think, where he said, "You search the scriptures because you believe in them, you have eternal life, but they are those that testify about me." Everything in the old covenant scriptures, from Genesis to Malachi, whether we understand how it refers to him or not, refers to him. So therefore, we do ourselves and our churches a disservice when we 
disconnect from the old covenant scriptures. They are cru- you can't understand the new if you don't know the old. And that's that's the fact. And it's Jesus who holds all of this together. So yes. uh, first covenant, the fulfilment of yeah. the law, uh, the second covenant. Uh, Jesus is such such a uh, a central figure to everything that we understand, and mm. that's why we can call him Lord and Savior. Yeah. He is the perfect Absolutely. image of God, uh, yeah. as the one who was incarnated. Uh, mm. God became flesh, dwelt among us. So, very, very exciting. Now, the interesting thing with when we talk about this first covenant, the Old Testaments, the prophecies that looked toward Jesus. Yep. Well, there were prophecies that looked beyond Jesus as a man born uh, of the virgin here uh, on earth. Those prophecies looked even towards the end or the close of the age, and they would come into even our time. And some people will argue, is this the end times? Is this the last days? Of course, the last days started right back to when Jesus walked on the face of the earth. But is this the end time? Well, there are a lot of events that are going on around the world. And while we won't get into a whole lesson on Bible prophecy today, uh, things that are happening in Israel today align perfectly with the prophecies that we can read from the Bible. You know, when, um, when, when we look at prophecies that have been fulfilled in Christ, right, there are hundreds of them, hundreds of them. And we go, ooh, ah, isn't that amazing? All these fulfilled prophecies, isn't that extraordinary? God's word is amazing. You know, we rah, 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 and we rail about that, and we we give God honor and glory and all the rest of it. But any time there is a prophecy about the Jewish people, especially when it comes to them being still the apple of his eye, still his chosen people, still the people that he's going to restore to the land, and then he actually restores them to the land, and we go, yawn. Oh, no, that's just a coincidence. We've just stolen God's glory for him, from him. He said he was going to do something. He actually did it. And we look away and say, no, that's not a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. How, I, I will say it this way. How dare we take God's glory from him when he has kept his word? Not, and he said he wasn't going to do it for their sake. He said, I'm going to do it for my great name's sake. So, yeah, prophecy is is being fulfilled literally right in front of our eyes in this day and age within which we live when we look at the modern state of Israel from the restoration of their ancient Hebrew language that was nothing more than a ceremonial language and it was resurrected from the deserts blooming. We drove through those deserts and, and you got this barren, barren wilderness and all of a sudden there's these... There's these gardens that are just blooming green in the desert. It's extraordinary. Do you know in Israel, Israel is a third the size of Tasmania. Okay, we're talking a really tiny little speck on the on the the global map. And in the geography of the state of Israel, they have about eighty percent of the diversity of different land kinds. Right, different, you know, whether it be desert, farmland, agriculture, rainforest, whatever. They've got eighty percent in of all the different kinds of land in that tiny little speck. Up on the mountains they're growing apples and cherries. Down in, in on the flat lowlands they're growing bananas and mangoes and all manner of vegetables and fruits and this place is booming with life. They've got fish fish farms and you know in the desert. <laughs> it's a, it's remarkable. 
Neil, what what is happening in this tiny little place? It's, it's just remarkable. Now, the ups and downs of the people of Israel, which we have the history written there in the Old Testament yep. and into the New Testament and a lot of the prophecies we've been talking about uh, being fulfilled even in our own day. Now, this is so significant because... The people of Israel, you might be thinking, oh, they're the people of God. They must be always on the winning side. Well, uh, so many ups and downs, uh, so much persecution has been uh, directed towards the people of Israel. And we might argue about how that happens and why that happens. Uh, is there someone trying to derail the process of the people of God? Well, you can uh, you can speculate as to how that worked. Well, of course, we can go back into the Old Testament. We can uh, talk about the way that the exile happened uh, for those people who are in the southern kingdom in Judah, uh, taken off to Babylon. It was yeah. like, oh, is that the end of uh, all of the rem- remnant of the nation of Israel? Then you had the uh, Romans uh, trying to uh, get rid of the people uh, about AD 70. Uh, The diaspora, the maneuvering and the moving of people uh, throughout the world away from Israel. So God's people completely scattered. Yes. And so when people try to write off the nation of Israel, uh, it's important to come back to those prophecies because those prophecies connect us with the truth that God actually is restoring his people, that he had taken a people for himself and he hasn't finished with them yet. And this has affected the way Christians have thought about uh, who is God's people. We'll, we'll talk about that some more in just a few moments. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. It's Neil with you on 2020. Mandy Warby is with us today and fresh back from one of the latest vision tours to Israel. And so we're getting into some conversation today and uh, I think we're wading into some deeper waters here, Mandy. And Mm -hmm. I suspect could be even some controversy in our conversation as we continue to unfold. But when we're talking about the diaspora, Uh, The way that uh, the children of Israel who were there in the southern kingdom were taken off into exile in Babylon, people think of that as a diaspora. But there was a second diaspora that was talked about. And uh, I sort of began to talk about that uh, with the Romans, AD 70. uh, But the the fulfillment of a prophetic word here is that there would be a second return to the nation and that's what we're pointing to in 1948. Absolutely and here's here's the thing a lot of people who who tend to think that God has forgotten about Israel will focus on the fact that yes God said he would bring his people back and establish them again and he did that when after 70 years captivity in Babylon he did he brought them back and reestablished them in their land. However when first of all, when they went back and were reestablished in their land, they were never a sovereign nation again. They never had their own king over them again. They were always under the subjugation of another occupying force: the Babylonians, then the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and so on and so on, right through, the, uh, right through until May 14, 1948. They were never a sovereign nation under their own laws and governance, but. In in um, Isaiah 11, 11 and 12, it says, In that day, okay, so Isaiah was before the prophet Jeremiah, and he was also before the Babylonian captivity. So therefore, the prophet Isaiah was looking way beyond the first captivity that had even happened yet. All right, now this is what he said. In that day, 
the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That is not a return from Babylon. That is, that's mentioning specific places and and then going, we have mentioned all these jolly places. Now I'm going to say from the four corners of the earth. When the people went into captivity with Babylon, they weren't dispersed to the four corners of the earth. This is, he said, a second time. So yes, they came back after the Babylonian exile. Absolutely, they did. But they were dispersed again in AD 70 after the destruction of Jerusalem when the Romans sacked the city. And then they were dispersed to the four corners of the earth. And it's been 2,000 years of waiting, waiting, waiting. And the church, because of its, I'm just going to say it, because of its history of anti-Semitism and replacement theology said, see, God has forgotten. He's forgotten. He does not interest in them anymore. We're now front and center. We're now the, the chosen people of God. And he's not interested in the Jewish people anymore. And, you know, there were theologians like um, uh, J.C. Ryle was one. There are actually a lot of them. I, I only got two in my head at the moment. The other one was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. They believed in the restoration of, the, of Israel. And they, and, and they even would say things like, God is going to do it because his word says it. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. But he said he's going to do it and therefore he will. And they died before seeing it. But the modern state of Israel was born in a day. Isaiah, again, he says, can a nation be born in a day? And the state of Israel was born in a day, brought forth in an hour. You know, when, they, when David Ben-Gurion declared that the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel was born, it was only on the air for about an hour. And, and, and the state of Israel was born. Out of the, the, the death and ashes of the Holocaust, the state of Israel was born. And on on one day, just as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, you've used a word that we've been talking about over this past couple of weeks in a number of conversations, and that is anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and in the same breath talking about Christians. And uh, sometimes we in, uh, you know, perhaps listeners regularly to this program and uh, talking about Israel, well, people probably listening to this program think, uh, well, I have a love for mm-hmm. Israel. Uh, how do Christians have a feeling of anti-Semitism? Well, we want to talk about the ugly face of anti-Semitism. And, and just as you're sharing that, and uh, we're using that word Christian in the same breath, because we don't want to actually have a, 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 a Christian anti-Semitism in our own day. But we, as I said last week, uh, turned the blowtorch on ourselves and recognized uh, that over that uh, 1800, 1900 years, there had been a... Christian anti-Semitism. I suspect that there are different levels of Mm anti-Semitism. None of them are good and none of them we ought to tolerate. But when we think of anti-Semitism, most of us will think of uh, the dreadful atrocities Mm -hmm. of the Holocaust, of Adolf Hitler and uh, those things that unfolded there in the Second World War. Uh, that's that's a, like the top level, awful atrocity level of anti-Semitism. Yeah. But then there's the anti-Semitism that goes along with the support or the or the endorsement of such things 
that might be from atrocities right down through all sorts of other levels of persecution. Some of those levels of persecution may be not quite so strong compared to that top level, but there's different levels of this anti-Semitism, and I guess we need to be on guard that we are not harbouring levels of anti-Semitism in our own hearts at all to God's people recognizing that this is an amazing miracle that God has done in bringing his people back together. Sure. Look, I, as a Christian, I know that when I read my Bible, I'm supposed to love people, forgive people, be gracious to people, do good for people, uh, whether they're my friends or my enemies. Okay, so I have this understanding of what a Christian ethos is. And when you go back and look at Christian history, the Christian church has done an extraordinary amount of good. They have done amazing things and things that have been established by Christians throughout the last 2,000 years, we should, in a humble way, feel very proud of that. You know, the Christian church has done amazing things. Where it has really failed in a really big way is with regard to the Jewish people. Now, you know, you and I have, have chatted just in the office about how we understand that there's a difference between genuine Christians and what we would call, you know, social Christians. You know, you go to church because it's a social thing to do. It's a traditional thing to do. You know, it's the acceptable thing to do. And that has been the case through through the centuries. We, We get that and understand that. But when you understand the Jewish mind, that the the worst persecution that they have experienced throughout All the nations of the earth for the past 2,000 years has been primarily at the hands of Christians, and some of it has been barbaric. And as I've researched that and learned things that have been done in the name of Christ, under the banner of the cross, while Christians are singing, Christ, we adore thee, and they're slaughtering Jews, at the end of the day, you kind of go, you know what? At some point, we as the church have got to own that. It's a really bad history. We've got to own it. We've got to admit to it. And then do something about it. Part of what Vision does is Vision leads tours to Israel. So that means that even you as a listener tuned into our conversation today uh, could be part of one of those Vision tours. And they are absolutely inspirational, uh, wonderful opportunities to connect with that biblical narrative of what happened on the ground in Jesus' life, of those places on which the patriarchs uh, stood and were a part of. Well, as you know, uh, there is a changing face of Christians when it comes to the relationship with Israel. We've spent the last half hour talking about a whole lot of things, including history and the formation of the modern state of Israel and the challenges that that state has faced. The fact that persecution continues for the nation of Israel today. Well, we're talking about also today anti-Semitism and talking about even Christians in relation to anti-Semitism, not hiding from the history and not wanting to get a big stick out either and uh, beat us all around the head, uh, but to recognize that there has been a significant history of anti-Semitism in the Christian church. And Mandy Warby, uh, to take things a little deeper to what we've been talking about with the modern state of Israel and the anti-Semitism that we've seen from the past, 
Let me ask you about anti-Semitism as you're seeing things today, because ahead of this latest vision tour to Israel, you and your husband Ian uh, took a detour to the nation of Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is in the headlines because of that dreadful atrocity with the Russians and MH17, and there were Australians on board that plane. It is, it's draw, it's, you know, our heartstrings are drawn, but it's brought Ukraine into the picture. There's also the uh, Russian activity with Ukraine and uh, areas around there as well. But in Ukraine, uh, the thing that's to draw attention to is that there is a very severe anti-Semitism that is rising in that nation. And there's a significant number of Jews that live in that European nation, Ukraine. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was our very first uh, trip to Ukraine. This year, we were actually asked two years ago to go, and that was when there was all of the drama with the downed aircraft and and whatnot. Now we were ready, we were ready to go to Ukraine, and our government said, uh, "No, we don't want you to go." Hmm. Um, and so we kind of withdrew from that. Um, it, it, the, the country, you know, I tell you, you know, the, the country, the nation of Ukraine, the, the the geography of the country is beautiful. What we saw of it, it's it's gorgeous. It's green. It's lush. Uh, infrastructure is not so great. In Ukraine, um, we had to sit in the airport for two hours when we arrived trying to get our visas to get into the country. You know, you know, why do it the easy way when you can do it the hard way sort of thing, you know. Um, uh, life is, is rather difficult in, for most Ukrainians. Uh, the economy is not great. Uh, wages is very, are very low, uh, even if you're a doctor. Even if you've got uh, uh, specialist skills, you know, wages are pretty low. So life in general is not great. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not woefully bad. It's not as bad as some countries, but it's, you know, it's, it's not fantastic. Uh, the standard of living and housing there is not fantastic. Um, the people are gorgeous, really lovely people, but the, the, the Ukrainians have had a history of harsh, oppressive communist governments. And they were actually under uh, Russian occupation until August 24th, 1991, I think, was when Ukraine got its independence. So they've lived under an oppressive communistic system for a very long time. So they're kind of a closed people. They're kind of suspicious. You know? Well, we know that uh, Jewish people were living in a whole lot of yep. nations, uh, places like Poland and, mm-hmm. of course, well, you know, around Germany, which uh, yep. obviously uh, uh, there was the main uh, uh, focal point of talking about the Holocaust usually sure. is about uh, Germany and Adolf Hitler. But, but there were Jews living in a lot of nations yes. that were surrounding uh, Germany. They were. Um, I mean, you think of the Holocaust and you think Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia. You think of Auschwitz-Birkenau as death camp and, and others like it. But there were actually hundreds of camps, death camps. And, you know, when Hitler marched through Europe, the Jews became a target in all of those countries, you know, and other people who, who uh, opposed Hitler. But the Jews originally coming into Ukraine, you think, well, why did they go there? Well, they... Originally, Jews uh, ended up in Ukraine because they were fleeing persecution from other European nations and, you know, things like the Inquisitions, right? They were fleeing those countries centuries before World War II and then they established themselves in Ukraine, 
established quite a lot of villages and towns and, and Jewish communities, and they actually lived very peaceful lives with their non-Jewish neighbours. They were very great contributors to their communities, and they established themselves quite well. And everything was kind of peaceful, um, apart from the occasional outbreak of violence or pogrom. Um, most of those took place like in Russia and, and other places. And, but they, they did okay in Ukraine until the outbreak of World War Two. And then it was like overnight, overnight, neighbours suddenly became enemies or turned their backs. You know, one day the war was declared and the next day troops would march through a town. Uh, I'll tell you what I learned about uh, the Holocaust in Ukraine. And that is when you think Holocaust, you think German death camps, um, mass gassings and incinerators to burn the bodies to ash. That's the kind of, and, and this machine that was established for one purpose, and that was to kill as many Jews as possible. I know it's really graphic for a, you know, mm-hmm. for a talk back in the morning, uh, but that is the fact of the matter. In Ukraine, it, a million and a half Jews were slaughtered in Ukraine, and it was called the Holocaust of Bullets because they simply rounded up Jewish people in a town or a village, and they either just shot them on the spot and buried them in a pit, or they marched them into a forest and just shot them and buried them in a pit. And sometimes people said the very next day the ground could be mo- it was moving because they weren't all dead. Mm. I mean, it's really graphic. I apologize for that, but it is a fact of the matter. That is what happened. It was a brutal time. And the, the nation of Ukraine is kind of has a massive big river that runs right through almost the center of it on an angle. And the north, north of the river, was basically occupied by German forces. South of that river was occupied by the Romanian forces. And if you were a Jew in the north, you had no hope of surviving. If you were a Jew in the south, you had a marginally better chance of surviving because the Romanians didn't necessarily just slaughter them with bullets. They would starve them to death, deprive them of all their rights and and everything else. So we visited a number of mass graves. And at this particular point, there are hundreds of mass graves yet to be excavated. Um, And I, you know, when we visited these um, graves with one particular lady, she's a Holocaust survivor named Rita. She's just the most beautiful lady, 83. She was just a tiny wee girl during uh, the Holocaust and she ended up being put into a camp. Her, Her father was sent to the front and died. Her, she, her brother and her mother were sent to a camp and virtually starved. Her mother died and her and her brother had to carry her. She's just a teeny weeny little girl. Her and her brother, who was I think two years older than her, had to, they were forced to carry her body for several kilometres into the forest where her mother's body was just thrown into a mass grave. And Mm. we actually went to this mass grave with Rita and she even said, I know where my mother is over in the corner. And it was, I cannot tell you what it is like to stand on a piece of ground. It was a very large piece of ground. Knowing that there were literally tens of thousands of bodies literally underneath my feet. And they were there simply because they were Jewish. Mm. Let's talk about another interesting development that has been going on. Because while we were reflecting a little earlier, 
1948 and the reinstatement of the nation of Israel, a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Clearly, God was not finished with his own people. Mm -hmm. He had established a land, the land of Israel, a, a land for his people. Now, it wasn't that all of the people were instantly there already. No. Or that there was somehow rather a uh, a big fence that kept everybody out because there were all of these people dispersed throughout all of these European nations and they had uh, dispersed to uh, largely uh, lots of different places and we've been talking about that. But what's been happening is ever since 1948, people have been coming back to Israel, mm-hmm. rediscovering or acknowledging their Jewish roots recognizing that they have a place there amongst God's chosen people. And so therefore they have made the return. Not everybody has had the finances, the capacity to be able to do that. But this return has been happening over all these years. And there's something special that connects Christians to what's happening because Christians have been helping Jewish people who have been in a situation, as you've been describing, largely a rising sense of anti-Semitism that that happens from time to time, Christians have been helping those Jews to return home. And that's a process that is known as as Aliyah. Yes. Tell me more about what Aliyah means. Okay, well, Aliyah is a Hebrew word, and it simply means to ascend, to go up. So any time a Jewish person talks about going to Jerusalem or going home to Israel, it means going up, ascending. So the word aliyah simply means to immigrate, to go up to Jerusalem. They're going home. That's what it means. And there are Christians mm-hmm. all around the world who are supporting various uh, yeah. ministries. And I know that uh, the one that uh, you and your husband, Ian, uh, Ian is uh, leading the Christians for Israel organization in Australia. And of course, that's a, it's a, you know, lots of different countries where there sure. are expressions of Christians for Israel. And there's finances that are coming in mm-hmm. and that is they're contributing to the cost of getting Jewish people from places like Ukraine and other yes. places too, but getting them on planes and resettling in Israel. Yeah. Now, I know that you have had a wonderful experience because you and Ian were on board a plane full yeah. of people doing yeah. this aliyah from Ukraine, traveling to Israel. Describe that experience for us. One of the most extraordinary experiences I've ever had in my whole life. It was absolutely amazing. We, um, as you said, we've part of uh, Christians for Israel um one of the things we do is we try to generate finances to assist Jews to make aliyah. If they're in a country where they are impoverished, where they don't have much assistance or in harsh countries, or we want to be able to assist the Jews to go home. It's funny you just said about Gentiles have been helping Jews for a long time, and it's absolutely true. And I Do you know the Balfour Declaration um, that was written? But the man was a Christian. Okay, and I find it amazing that it's always been Christians who have been working and instrumental behind the scenes to help pave the way for the Jewish people to go home, uh, and um, and even when the Iron Curtain came down, a Christian man by the name of Steve Lytle, who had the most unbelievable visions from God, who established before the Iron Curtain came down, he established whole you know loads of buses and 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 big barns full of clothing and and food and when the iron curtain came down a million and a half Jews were assisted by this organization established by Steve Lytle called Ebenezer assisting these Jews to come home and getting them onto ships and getting them home to Israel Christians have been 
really instrumental in helping the Jews come home. Evangelical Christians, I'll be probably a little bit more specific in that. But anyway, so because for the past 20 years, Christians for Israel has been assisting with Aliyah for Ukrainian Christians, last 20 years. And so we traveled to Israel and we got to meet up with a a large group of 154 Jewish people, numerous families involved in there, many young people who were going to make Aliyah and complete their studies and become citizens in Israel, 154 of them. And um, we went to um, a breakfast ceremony where we had breakfast with them, um, where they sang songs. There was, you know, speeches and all of that rah, 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 because you've got to do that because there's always politics involved in these things. And then um, group by group headed off to the airport and then we headed off as well with the group that we were going to be traveling with. We boarded, went through the airport and you know, it was actually very emotional because there's a, a lot of these families were leaving and parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts and even other siblings were not going. And so it was a real tearing, for heart-wrenching to watch these people as they're hugging their families and saying goodbye, not knowing when they were going to see each other again. You know, there was some bitter tears in that. Um, and yet we followed them onto the plane and then there was the cheer as the plane took off, two chartered, two chartered planes. So there were no other tourists or anything on the plane, just Jewish people making Aliyah. There was the cheer went up as the, the plane took off. And then when the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> still struggling with this throat, my You'll apologies. <laughs> and then, then when the, um, the plane landed and the cheer went up, and the clapping and the applause, these people were home. You know, something about the Jewish people for the last 2,000 years, every time they celebrate Passover, they had the Passover meal, they finish by saying the same thing next year in Jerusalem. There has been this cry within the heart of the Jewish people in the diaspora that has never left them. Next year in Jerusalem, the, the dream, the desire has always been to go home to the land of their forefathers, to go back where they started. And so when we, we got off the plane, we walked with them through to this welcoming ceremony. There were politicians. There was a very famous Natan Sharansky, um, who himself was a, 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 a Jewish Jew, a Russian Jew who made Aliyah after being in prison, in a Russian uh, prison for being a political prisoner. And um, and I'll, I'll tell you one of the most moving things. They had a couple of young Jewish uh, musicians there. They had themselves had made Aliyah a number of years before, very gifted musicians, and they played on keyboard and violin. And the song Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, they, they just did the instrumental, you know, playing of that particular song, and then it got to the chorus, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And all of a sudden, we just heard this swell of voices behind us. And all of these new Jewish immigrants started singing hallelujah. Most of them, unbelievers. And if you know the Hebrew word for hallelujah, simply means to praise the Lord. Here they are, singing hallelujah, waving their Israeli flags. And there wasn't a dry eye in the place, Neil. It was one of the most moving and impacting things I've ever ever experienced in my life, and, and, and I'll tell you why it was. There is a scripture in 
I want to find where it is. Um, just got to get the right one. And it is, I'm looking through my pages here, this is the one, Isaiah 49, 22. And it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So this is not Isaiah. This is what God himself says, and he's sovereign. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be their foster fathers and queens, your nursing mothers, and they will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. This is God saying, I am going to beckon the Gentiles to carry your sons and daughters and bring them home. And we were with them when that happened. We helped assist them. We helped carry their sons and daughters across the land, across the ocean, and to take them home. And I can't think of another word to describe how amazing that was. Mm. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Mandy Warby's been our guest over this past hour. We've been hearing her amazing story of actually being on the plane with Jewish people from Ukraine on their journey back to the land of Israel. And sometimes when we reflect on the land of Israel, some people say, is there any other bigger proof for the existence of God himself? That is the big proof that God is actually restoring his chosen people in that land of Israel. He's been doing it since 1948. People have been coming back to the land, and it's often evangelical Christians who are lending that helping hand, carrying them on their shoulders. Uh, Mandy, we haven't got any more time much to talk, but uh, how can people keep informed, uh, get informed? Maybe this is new to some listeners. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's the best way just to keep up to date? Okay, well, there is there are a lot of resources that people can educate themselves with, and I don't have time to list them all now, but if anybody was interested, I'd be more than happy to send out a list of uh, recommended resources to educate yourself about church history. Um, you need to know the good things about the church. You also need to know the, the not-so-good things about the church. This is one of them. Warts and all. Warts and all. We need to educate ourselves. Um, pray for the people of Israel. Um, speak well. Of Israel, Israel comes under so much condemnation and scrutiny, and it's it's look. We've just had, we've taken hundreds of people to Israel, and they all come away saying it's nothing like the media says, and it's true. The Israel does not persecute the Palestinian people, and we need to understand the current political situation as well as history, and then there are practical things you can do to help the people of Israel too. And again. If anybody wants to communicate with me, I'm happy to give a few suggestions. And, of course, I imagine there'll be another tour to Israel coming up next year. Actually, I think this is – we've had the last one for this year. Yeah. Next year, I imagine you'll be wanting to uh, make contact with people who'd like to go. Well, actually, next year we're going in October, and that is also going to be the 100-year anniversary of the charge of the Australian light horse at Beersheba that liberated Beersheba and led the way to the liberation of the land from the Ottoman Turks. So we're going there in the hope that we will be able to even see a reenactment of that and then go on with our normal tour. So that's next October, and we're looking for people to um, sign up for that even now because, as you can understand, something with such a big anniversary to it, 
seats are going to go very, very quickly. So we're really going to have to um, get people responding to that. Okay, so there is a year in the planning there, but uh, the opportunity to connect with Mandy Warby, and you can simply call us here at Vision. You can be put through to Mandy, uh, or you can go to the page on the Vision website, which is all about Vision Tours, and that'll also find its way uh, to Mandy Warby. You'll be able to make contact. Mandy, great getting your insights, hearing your heartbeat, and, you know, it's quite historic. Just hearing about the things that you and Ian have been involved in. Uh, wonderful to hear these things and let's get another catch up on another day. And I must say, for people who are regular listeners to our intermission segments, they'll be fired up again in no time. They will be next week, next week. <laughs> yeah, next week. Thanks, Mandy. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.